Welcome to Across the Line. Today, we've got a treat for all of you folks. Uh, another coach, but not the conventional type. Blaine McKenna is on the program. And what a fascinating chat it was, Chris. Yeah, we haven't really had uh, any coaches on the show like Blaine. Um, his primary area of expertise is, is sports psychology. Uh, and then within that, he talks a lot about visualization. He talks a lot about um, self-talk. Um he worked with a couple of very familiar names, which I won't spoil, but um, some, some names that are familiar to the Philippine football public. And uh, yeah, just a different perspective on, on the coaching game and, and, and focusing more on, on the mind. Um, so I, I'm hoping that the viewers, the listeners will, will experience this and, and see the sort of the dis- different elements to the psychological aspect of football that I think is really, really undervalued. And, and it's something that isn't really spoken of generally in, in footballing, footballing circles. So I really enjoyed that, the conversation with with, uh, with Ben, and I hope uh, the audience does too. If you're a player, if you're a coach, if you're a parent, and you're, you're thinking about ways to improve the performance of your kid, man, this episode is perfect for it. And it really shines a light on the importance of the mental game uh, with regards to football or performance in general so if you like this one if you uh take something from it please do subscribe to the show on youtube spotify and on apple Podcasts. and don't forget to follow us on social media on facebook twitter and on instagram without further ado it's blaine mckenna on this football friday welcome to across the line today we've got the opportunity to speak to another coach but not quite like other coaches that we've had a chance to speak with on this podcast. This one has traveled all around the world, um, you know, teaching his craft. And uh, today we're going to see a little bit of an insight into, uh, hopefully, into the world of sports psychology and some of the things that uh, Blaine McKenna specializes in. He's from New Zealand at the moment. Uh, He's been there for the last three months. How's it going, Blaine? Yeah, it's, it's good. It's a great, great place to be at the moment, considering how the world is. Yeah, um, I, I'm presuming over there it's uh, not so bad. Here, it's 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 a quite a difficult state that we're in, but how are things over there in New Zealand? Yeah, we haven't had a case for around seven days or so, and we just come out of lockdown last week. So we're back to playing football and things. So life, there's still distancing and things in place, but generally it's getting back to back to normal. Oh my God, Chris, that's... Man, you got to feel jealous when you hear Blaine say something like that, huh? I'd love to think we are quite close to that, but unfortunately, I don't think we are anywhere near that uh, that opportunity just yet. So, yeah, a little bit jealous, a little bit envious, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's got to start somewhere. And if they've got their act together, then then great. I hope his kids are, are enjoying the session, how the players are enjoying their sessions. But uh, I think we're a way off that, unfortunately, Jing, at this particular moment in time. Uh, Blaine McKenna is actually somebody that I've, I, I was familiar with on Twitter um, uh, initially. So it was pretty cool that you said that he was going to be coming on to the podcast. And you guys asked me earlier on about why I got into following Blaine McKenna. And this is something that I'm just going to reveal for the first time. But there was a time in my past when I was kind of interested in like, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I was thinking, you know, it was such a bad experience for me growing up uh, in terms of coaching in, in, in the sport of football. And I was thinking, you know, what are some ways that I could start getting into that realm of things? I don't know why I was deluded enough to think that I could get into the world <laughs> of coaching football. I would give him my limited experience, but Blaine was a very cool resource to look at on Twitter and somebody that's very inspirational in terms of his, his trajectory and his journey, you know, and he, he depicts it quite nicely on Twitter. And 
as you mentioned, Blaine, now you are over in New Zealand, but China, um, where else have you gone? Thailand, the Philippines, you've got some incredible experience um, going all over the world, uh, teaching the football uh, everywhere that you can uh, find yourself. That's, that seems to be an amazing journey that you're on. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like the day after, well, when I was studying, I went to America and Canada, and then the day after I finished a master's degree, I flew straight to Kuwait. And then in the past four or five years, I've been in Kuwait, Dubai, Malawi, South Africa, China, Thailand, Singapore, New Zealand, and basically been been all over the place. It's been an amazing an amazing experience. Great way to see the world while honing your craft as a coach. Where are you originally from, Billy? Uh, Northern Ireland. I see. Um, we've, we've got plenty of accents that have come through this podcast, but I think that's the first <laughs> time I've heard that one. Yes. People, people are saying I'm Scottish, but I might need Chris to translate at some stage because it's not that easy to understand. Uh, Blaine, Blaine and I, actually, we met on the, on the A-license course last uh, two years ago. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was in, held in, in Northern Ireland, so... Uh, and anyway, there's my course was split into two weeks, so I had a, I had the the, the first part of, of the UEFA B, and then the second part was the first part of the A license. So the, my first introduction with, to Blaine was he, he he came over to me. Um, I think it was pitch side. Correct me if I'm wrong, Blaine. Uh, and he introduced himself. I think it's quite a friendly cohort actually in in that group. So you know you sort of say hello to everyone. Then he starts rat, rattling off these these familiar names. He says, "Oh, uh, he said, yeah, uh, Mark Hartman. Yeah, I, I worked with him in um, uh, in Thailand, and I and I also worked under uh, Scott Cooper. And I'm thinking, what what the heck's going on here? This is I mean, football's a small world in in general, but but he has got some um, some unique ties to the the Philippines with with some of your work with with Scott and, and with Mark. So I mean, you you gave a little rendition the other day when you did a webinar for me with our under 15s, but you've had you had some unique experiences with Mark, didn't you? When you had a little bit of time with him at Ubon. Yeah, well, when I first arrived in Thailand, the first person I met was Scott Cooper, and he was amazing for me. Like, I met him at the pitch, and he says, don't worry about the football side of things, because I just landed in Thailand at that stage. He says, get yourself settled off the pitch, and once you're comfortable, then we can start talking about the football. And he's quite tough. He's quite hard on players and things sometimes, but he's such a nice man. He was so welcoming to me, and he made my life very easy right from the, right from the off. And then in the second season, Mark joined the club, and Scott had signed him originally. But then Scott left and then a new head coach came in. And that's kind of what caused the problems for Mark initially in terms of Scott signed him to play number 10. But then this head coach was trying to play him centre forward. And that's kind of meant he didn't get off on the right foot in Thailand because Mixu started playing him centre forward. But Mark in one preseason game, he kept dropping in number 10. He kept dropping in the CDM because that's where he wanted to play. He wanted to get on the ball. He wanted to spray a few diags. You know what, you know what Mark's like? So he found himself out of the team and I was watching all the sessions and the two foreign strikers weren't firing. So I said to Mark, basically, I met him at Starbucks one day. I said to him, just sit down, talk to Mixu, tell him you want to play centre forward. You'll stay high up. You'll do the role because you've scored. You've got a decent goal scoring record at different clubs and things you've been at. And then Mixu listened. He started him against Bury Ram United in the next game. And before that, he'd only scored one goal in six games after scoring against Bury Ram United. He scored three in the next four, made two assists, and then Ratchet Bury bought him, and he got a couple of more contracts in Thailand after that. So it's a good spell. It's a difficult start initially, but Mark Mark was brilliant because in Ubon Ratchetani, there aren't many foreigners and things. So kind of Mark and I kind of saw each other and we kind of just sort of 
came together. We could have a chat about things, just being both being from the UK. So it worked quite well. We developed a good friendship there and we were able to achieve quite a bit of success after, after a tough beginning. That uh, licensing course that you guys were on together, what, that was reserved for former players, right? So that did you ha- did you play uh, quite extensively as well prior to becoming a coach, Blaine? Um, the way I got on, I stopped playing was about eighteen. It's because I was local, so it's my local federation. So typically, they look after local coaches first, get all of them on, and then they bring in sort of from the foreigners the first cohort they accept, or more so ex-professional players. So I mean, it's what were the names like in that course? Chris was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was on it for one, so me. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, gosh, it was it was incredible, wasn't it? I mean, we had um, yeah, Stephen P and R, Carter Carvalho, uh, Richard Dunn, Jermaine Jones. I mean, the list was oh, just so many, mate. I can't, I can't even remember them. Julian Lescott, it's just you know, full of you know international superstars, really. So it, it was it was nice, wasn't it for for people to get to see them up close and personal, see them on their coaching journey, see them struggle like every other coach. And that was also quite a nice thing to see. Um, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of them were quite generous with their time, weren't they? And sort of sharing their experiences, sharing their knowledge uh, and that kind of thing. So no, it was, for, I don't know how you found it, Blaine, but it was, it was, it was certainly a brilliant experience for me. Yeah, Thiago was such a nice guy though. He used to play for Chelsea under Mourinho and he played under Diego Simeone of Athletic Madrid. I was just interested in talking to him, especially about Diego Simeone, in terms of saying like it wasn't always in, so enjoyable for the players sometimes because his style of play wasn't so progressive. And then also it was quite coincidental that his topic was defending deep in a 4-4-2 because the coaches, the coach educators kind of wanted us to see uh, what Diego Simeone team looks like. So that was really interesting. You remember that session? I, I partnered with Thiago uh, in one of the sessions. Um, I was his uh his main coach while he was the theoretical manager i forget if it was that topic but he did something really interesting he said simeone would do all the time in the sessions so uh, we did one uh we we had one scenario where we were we had the ball at the back and then we were we were trying to play out the opponent won the ball back so we were obviously coaching one team and then the opposition team were breaking through on goal and he actually stopped the session He, he blew his whistle and he said no no stop 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 and brought it back. And obviously the players on the opposition team were like, oh gosh, you know, we was just about to score a goal there. What, what was that all about? And uh, even I was a little bit shocked. I thought he'd just let the play run. So I asked him afterwards and I said, like, what would you, you do that for? He said, he said, Chris, he said, he said, Diego Simeone would never, ever, 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 ever let the opposition score in one of the training sessions if he was working on something specific with that group. So uh, he said, yeah, he, said, he, he, was, he literally said, he said, yeah, I, I definitely, I'm going to stick, yeah, I stole that from him and I would never let an, an opponent in one of my training sessions score against me. So I thought, yeah, it was unique, wasn't it? And it's just little things that you pick up because obviously you learn your bits and pieces from the course itself. But I think the, the main takeaway for most coaches is actually the interactions that you have with, um, with the cohort, you know, whether that be with, you know, someone like yourself, you know, with an area of expertise like psychology or whether it be someone who's played at the highest level, won Champions Leagues, won, um, you know, um, international competitions and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, really, really great course. Yeah, it was interesting as well. I remember one of the workshops we did, it was on psychology, kind of what it takes to develop elite talent. And there's so many of the ex-professionals are saying you're born with it because all of them are kind of biased through their experiences. And I think it was maybe Jermaine Jones. Like some of them are saying, like, my kid has it, my kid has it. 
But I think a lot of the time that comes because they've been in an environment from a young age with their father being a professional footballer. They've seen it up close. They've spoken to him. They've heard all the stories. But then it was interesting. Jermaine Jones says that one of his kids has it, but then the other kid doesn't. I just thought that was brilliant. And that kind of just sums, sums it up. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, he's got twins. He's got twins, is not he? Um, as well. I think he's got twins or, or Jolie and Lesko had twins or something like that. And he was sort of yeah. saying something similar. But, uh, but no, yeah, really, really, really good course. And, and, and obviously one of the things that is, that's great with the, the, those types of courses is just the ability to network and meet people um, with different ideas and different philosophies on the game. And obviously one of your key areas of interest is, is psychology. Um, yeah. I mean, th- there's quite a few things that, that we want to discuss, but for, for, for us with the, with, with the podcast, you know, we have a lot of responsibility on our shoulders, I think, here in the Philippines. And um, we have a lot of young players we listen to the show. We have coaches who listen to the show, and I think it's important that we try to deliver some, um, you know, some informative podcasts as well as just recounting people like myself talking about you know the wonderful uh, experiences that we had as players. So, yeah, I mean, tell us a little bit about some of the things that that, that you're um, you're doing at the moment within psychology because you you've got a crippling from wrong. You've, you're about to launch a kind of online platform or, or, or training. Um, I was going to say manual but um, a training product um, that, that's kind of all geared around different aspects of psychology. Do you, do you want to sort of delve into that a little bit? Yeah, I'll take it back from the start. So when I was doing my master's degree in sports psychology, my research was into the knowledge and perceptions of psychology in football. And basically what we found was there was a negative perception of sports psychology and it was typically down to a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge and exposure to it. And I'll give you a few examples of that. So the likes of Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling said sports psychology is not for me because a lot of people think because of a lack of knowledge, a lack of exposure to it, they think that someone's going to come in, sit in an office, talk about their childhood, all their deep things deep down. But it's, it's not like that. It's there to improve performance. So he went and saw a sports psychologist when he was at Liverpool. After a short exposure to it, he now understood what it looks like in practice. And then he buys into it. And then Bennett Afobi, exactly the same thing. He'd never hit over 20 goals or something. He saw a sports psychologist in that season. His performance went through the roof. So basically what it is, it's, there's still a negative perception attached, attached to all, sites, all aspects of sports psychology. And over time, that's going to change, but there's still that stigma. So it's difficult for people to get access. And then also when sports psychologists and things come in, they don't speak in football language. So when they don't build that rapport. In is the that where the stigma... Is that where the stigma stems from, do you, do you think, Blaine? Is, is it more a case of, is, is it a lot of, it's, it's not digestible enough for, for whether it be the fans, for, for the general player, for coaches, etc. because there is a stigma. And I just want to know what, what, what your take on it as to why that is. Well, it's, it's psychology as a whole. So people think they have a problem. If you go and have a see a sports mm-hmm. psychologist, oh, I've got a problem. Yeah. Whereas that's not the case. And that's down to a lack of knowledge and a lack of exposure to it. Like the majority of players from academy level have never had it. They get to first team and then a sports psychologist comes in. Like, we don't need this. We've never had it before. So why would they start using it? So now in the academy in England, they have it. You must see a sports psychologist once a week, which is great. Because as they go through the age groups, it becomes a normal part of the performance process. And then once they reach adulthood, then they realise the importance of it. And also as well. Sorry, Blaine. You know, one thing I don't understand with that is... you look at a football club, especially at the, even at the academy level in, in, in the UK now, for example, there's so much money poured into it, so much, so much money. And you've got you know, how many physios, you know, to take care of, of, of the body, you know, how many um, uh, sports scientists, analysts, 
you know, all of these other things to, to take care of um, certain elements, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, certain components and elements of the game of football. Yet, if you were to ask a footballer, what's the most important thing? What's the most important thing about the game of football is, is your mental capacity, your, your ability to, um, to sort of process information, to uh, you know, how you feel, about your confidence, etc. And yet, there very few clubs, I think, have really invested enough time and money and energy into that side of the game, which to me is absolutely bizarre. I don't know what, again, I don't know if you've got a thought on that as to why, why, why that is or, or why people seem to be so um, reluctant to spend money on, on, for me, what is one of the most obvious things, if you had an endless amount of money, which Premier League clubs do, why would you not try to invest in that aspect of the game? Yeah, there's a number of aspects. In terms of at the top level with head coaches and things, they don't want too many people talking to the players. They don't want too many voices in the players' heads. So that's one aspect of it. And okay. also you've got aspects, but it's, it's not as easy to quantify as other sports scientists. When it comes to like physical conditioning, you can see the player runs this distance in this time. But when it comes to psychology, it's not as easy to measure in that sense. Okay. And then that coupled with the stigma still attached to it, and then people haven't ex- people haven't been exposed to it. And then a part of the problem as well is sports psychology. There's a big gap between the theory and the practice. Like the pe- the practitioners don't right. really understand the language that the academics and things are talking. So there's a massive gap between that. And then the people that have tried to bridge that gap don't understand football, so they can't speak the right language. They go into environments they don't really fit in. Right. And with that as well. Like Swansea, when they were in the Premier League, they were one of the first teams that had a sports psychologist on the pitch wearing a tracksuit with the rest of the staff. And eventually that's where it needs to get to because at the minute, sports psychologists come in part-time. They go meet the players in an office and that's not the environment. A sports psychologist has to be wearing a kit with the rest of the performance staff, not necessarily dealing directly with players during sessions, but feeding messages through the coaches, watching body language, seeing how the coach is interacting with the players. So it's... Like everything you do as a coach is, is involved with sports psychology, but a lot of people can't see it because it's not covered as much in coach education courses and things. And that's another, yeah. that's another issue in itself. Super interesting. You know, um, that so much of the, uh, there's so many players and examples where nothing changes in terms of their skill set, but in terms of like uh, when there's a coaching change, certain players will perform so much better even though their position in the team has not changed, but perhaps just a, a level of confidence given by uh, the coach, a few words that were said to them, and then all of a sudden they're playing out of their, their minds. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. What led you down this path or what led you down this this area of uh, interest? So for me, when I was a player, I was a bit of a perfectionist. So anytime I made a mistake, I couldn't really handle it. And that was the problem for me because physically I was good, technically and tactically I was good, but psychologically it was one area of the game that I was lacking. So then that encouraged me to go down that route because no one helped me. So I kind of want to give something back to the kids that I never had. And also for me as well, it's so important because it transfers to other areas of life because the majority, the 99% of the kids you coach won't become professional. So if you only teach them the technical and tactical things, you're missing a massive opportunity. So for me, if I can bring them in, if we can develop communication in the sporting context, if we can develop different skill sets, mental skills, and we can help them transfer these in the school, 
if we can transfer them into their home life, if we can transfer it to them socially, then you're making a much bigger impact because not only will you help players become professional because you're improving their skill sets, they can handle certain situations on the pitch, then you're making them more valuable human beings off the pitch. And for me, that's really valuable because that will improve every aspect of their life, how they go about their day-to-day work. They get up in the morning, what's their goal, what's driving them? So it's all these all these aspects behind it, which is, for me, it's the most meaningful thing and the biggest difference that we can make in someone's life. I totally agree with that one, Blaine. I think we we, we as coaches spend too much time on the technical and tactical uh, and physical corners you know it's uh, but it's like a leg legs of a table if if the psychosocial one is not taken care of the table is going to fall over isn't it and I think um, you know you've got some really unique um, sort of perspectives and insights into that and one of the things that you talked about there is, is mental skills and um, you know I know you're of the belief that it's something that can be cultivated and developed how, how do you go about trying to develop mental skills for for, for, for players of all ages yeah, it was interesting because one of your boys asked me the other day about mental toughness and people kind of see it as you're either tough or you're not. So if a, you see a player, a lot of coaches will see a player, they drop their heads after something goes wrong and they'll just say that this, we can't help this kid like this, they're not going to make it. Whereas if it's a technical and tactical problem, they jump and help them right away. So this is the aspect we need to develop. So it needs to be seen as a skill and it's something that can be developed and it's something that can be improved. Like for me, as a perfectionist, when something went wrong, I just dropped my head and that'll be me finished. Whereas my coach came up to me one day and says, even Wayne Rooney makes mistakes, so you're going to as well. So that, it kind of helps you put things into perspective. And we kind of work off 14 topics basically within our program. And we've done, during this period, we've been delivering a lot of workshops on it and things. Because initially when we didn't have as much time, I developed performance script. And when I first came to New Zealand, I came to New Zealand around four years ago. It was to do a PhD in life skills. So some of the work when I was here, I was working with gymnasts and things. So, for example, one of the international gymnasts, she went to an international competition and she dropped the hoop. And after that, her entire performance would collapse. And the simple reason her performance would collapse is because she didn't know what to do when something went wrong. So what I did was I gave her a performance script. So it's basically visualization that will talk her through each aspect of her performance in detail of exactly what she's going to do. It was all positive, seeing herself doing things well. And then there's one moment in the script when she would drop the hoop. And when that happened, I gave her a trigger word. So it was strong. She came up with this word herself. She wrote strong on her wrist. And she coupled that with her body language so she knew what she had to do. When she made a mistake, she's going to be strong. She's going to keep her body language and then she's going to bounce back. So this time she had something in place. When something went wrong, she was prepared for it because as soon as she drops the hoop, she knows exactly what her reaction is to that. And then that enabled her to bounce back from her performance and she was able to win a bronze medal at the competition. And it's just such a simple thing that she had a strategy in place, whereas before, if she dropped the hoop, her entire world would collapse around her because she built it up to be much more important than as she was. And that was affecting her anxiety, anxiety levels within her performance. Wow, that's incredible. There's something that stood out to me there was, uh, I'm sure you guys touched on this in the session w- with, with the under-15s, but you said something about keeping the body language. I always felt as if body language was a reflection of your state of mind. Uh, so if, you, you know, if somebody had good body language, that meant that, meant that their, their headspace was in the right spot. But you're saying that keeping a particular kind of body language also has uh, some sort of positive positive effect on your mindset is that is that correct to say 
Yeah, so if you carry strong body language, chest up, head held high, then you do that for a period of time, then you release more testosterone. So then obviously that has positive impacts on your performance. Whereas if something goes wrong, you drop your shoulders, you have negative body language, you feel down, you release some more cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And obviously that has negative impacts on your performance as well. So it directly links into your physiology and things that makes a big difference to how you feel and how you perform. And then also the messages it sends to the people around you. So if your shoulders are dropping, that's giving the opponent a lift. And also if you're reacting negatively when your teammate makes a pass, you're throwing your hands up in the air, then that's going to affect the relationships and the chemistry within the team. So it's got a massive impact, not only on how you feel, but how your teammates feel and then the opponent as well. And also how we can use our bodies in terms of body language, how we can use that to deceive the opponents as well by disguising certain passes. There's, there's lots of different ways we can use our body language within the performance environment. And it's also as well, coaches are judging it. So as soon as you turn up to a training session, as soon as you go anywhere, your coaches are looking at you. They can always read in your body language. So you might not be saying anything, but your body language is screaming a message about how you're feeling and what your attitude's like. And people are constantly judging these things. And then also in terms of your style of play, like what you're like on the ball. Are you confident and brave? Do you take the ball in tight situations? Do you always want it? Or do you start shying away when you make a mistake? Do you start hiding? So our behavior and our body language says massive amounts about, about us. And it also determines how far you'll go in football because your body language isn't good. People will see you as a lazy player. Like Mesut Ozil is a great player. But his body language, he looks quite laid back in things. So people judge him based on that. And that's a massive part. So if we can make kids aware of the importance of body language, if we can encourage them to have strong body language, which helps them release more testosterone, it's going to help their performance. And also if they understand the implications that people are judging them every time they step foot in the pitch, maybe judgment's not the right word, but they're assessing and they're always looking at them to see what they can read into it. And if players are aware of that, and if they understand how to use their body language in a positive way, it means they'll be much more valuable players and they'll experience more success. Wow, that's that's really really interesting. You know, I, I, there's a player like Dimitar Berbatov, for example, was a player that always seemed like, you know, he wasn't interested. You know, it always seemed like he wasn't interested. But if you really watched him play, he was a fantastic player. But wow, was he criticized for his laziness, for example? But you know, he ran a lot. But just because his body language was that way, it was so much easier to criticize um, sort of the negative aspects of how he carried himself on the pitch. Oh, it's quite interesting. Um, so when this was delivered to your under-15s, Chris, was was this something that was uh, received quite well by, by, by the youth team? Yeah, really well. I, I think Blaine did a great job of, of doing a, uh, making it interactive. So a lot of the kids were able to um, pose him questions, ask him uh, you know, about how certain scenarios would dictate certain outcomes. So yes, a lot of that stuff. One of the things that Blaine... Uh, spoke about there was about your body language screaming and he shared a video of the Kentucky basketball coach um doing an interview and he was saying about how his guys um were very quiet in, in the locker room or, or something of that nature very quiet on the court uh, and just had bad body language and although they weren't saying anything he said that the word that he used was their but their body language was screaming and, and, and the message that it was sending out was, was that we weren't prepared, that we were going to get beat, that we weren't, you know, we weren't up for the fight. And, uh, yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, maybe it's not a sp- spoken thing. It's not something that's um, necessarily um, explicit, but it, it's picked up 
it's, it's picked up by an opponent. You know, they can smell that, they can feel that. And and ultimately, when when you go into battle or when you're in that, like for example, the Kentucky basketball, um, you know, those games are tightly fought, contested matches uh, at the higher end of the NCAA Division One basketball. You know, those things matter, and then then they're the difference between winning and losing. So, um, yeah, the, the the boys really really enjoyed it. There were there were so many different aspects to 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 the body language um, element that. That Blaine was really able to to, to nail, nail down. I mean, what 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 were your what were your take on on, on that on that um, webinar that you did the other day with the fifteens? How how well do you think they received some of that information? Yeah, well, I think it's really important. If I just link it back to ours as well, well I've done about seventeen presentations now for our mm. our players over the last couple of months, and we had an international player on, so we get some players on to kind of talk about pathways and things of where our players can potentially go. And it was funny because the players were asking him questions and they knew more about the topics than he did. So he asked me, like, do you think self-talk's important? Do you think these boys need self-talk? And I was like, right. everyone has self-talk. It's just whether you're aware of it or not. Everyone has thoughts during yeah. the day. And the message is, are your thoughts helping you achieve your goal or are you not planning it? Because if you let just things happen to you, you're reactive, you're not linking your self-talk to your goals, then you're missing a massive opportunity because everyone experiences negative thoughts. We have tens of thousands of thoughts every day. And some research shows that the majority of those are negative. So if you're experiencing negative thoughts, and that's affecting your emotions, and that's affecting your performance as well. Do you want to expand on that, Blaine? Because it's it's somewhat of a buzzword, isn't it? Self-talk. You know, I think it's been going around, and not not necessarily just in sporting circles. It's 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 in, in different social groups that you see it's on Facebook, Twitter, and stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff surrounding that at the moment. What's your sort of take on on self talk, and, and maybe try to break it down for some of the listeners, viewers, as to what that actually means? So self talk is essentially the things we say internally to ourselves, or we can even say it out loud as well. But it's how we talk to ourselves, and it's massive because it can impact so many aspects of performance. So if someone's like a hothead, like Wayne Rooney's getting fired up his trigger word or his self-talk during the game might be blue or like calm, cool head. Mm. So it can help you calm down. If someone needs to get fired up, someone might say vengeance because the language we use is very powerful and how we think and how we feel. So it can help get you fired up. It can help get you cooled down. It can help you focus on certain tactical and technical aspects during the game. And trigger words are so powerful, even in terms of communication. Like my first game in Thailand, we were playing Bury Ram United. I was standing at the side of the pitch not one player spoke English. How can I communicate with them? So we developed trigger words and that was how we communicate with one another. Mm. But then players can also use trigger words themselves to trigger their performance because during a game, things happen very, very quickly within seconds. So you can't always call on, people have positive self-statements like, I am good enough, I can do this. But during a game, you don't always have time to roll off longer statements. So if you can use trigger words, one word, it could be fast, it could be brave, it could be lively, it could be... It could be anything that kind of triggers their behavior. And for example, when I was working with Mark, like part of it was open communication with Mixu, the head coach. But then after that, we developed a script and it had trigger words, which are essentially self-talk that Mark would use that would help trigger his performance on game day. And they linked to the role that Mixu wanted from him. So each there was three paragraphs and each one was linked to words. Like one of them was like transition because he wanted them to transition quicker. There was other different ones. So all these words, Mark, he had them written on his wrist. So he had three words, and then the acronym was put on his wrist. I think it was like MTS, and he had that close to him. He'd listen to the audio script. So the trigger words were in the audio script. He'd listen to it before he played. He would visualize himself going through the performance. And 
it helped him because it's basically him helping to understand his role. But yeah. it's important. It's important that everyone has it because the first starting point for Mark as well was the goal setting. So how can he? What can he do to help achieve his goals? And off that, you're able to develop trigger words. You're able to develop statements which help him feel in a certain way that can help him achieve his goals. So there's so many different aspects, but it definitely helps you. It can help us as coaches with our communication to players. Then it also helps players trigger their performance and also develop statements that helps them work towards their goals as well, which is very important. It's quite interesting you say that because I think it's Sean Dyche um, at Burnley, the head coach at Burnley, and he he has like basically like a, sm- a small dossier on each player in terms of like how they want to be communicated to, um, you know, what what's the best way to kind of get their um, most positive response. And all of these coaching staff will have access to that information. And I think that's so critical because what he was saying is in the flow of the game, you know, he has to shout. He has to shout and he has to scream and he has to... And if you're someone who's like, I don't really respond to someone shouting at me. I'm, I'm quite... I, I shy away from that type of... If he's, if he's going to shout one of those keywords or buzzwords, even if it might seem in an aggressive manner, when it's not meant in that way, but he might be able to process that information in that split second and be like, right, I'll, he said whatever the keyword might be, the trigger word, as you said. Okay, he wants me to get into this position more. He wants me to do this a little bit more to accentuate my game in order to to, to conduct uh, to carry out the game plan. I think that's a that's a massive one. You know, um, I've, I've seen people do it with um, when they miss, miss miss chances if they're a striker and they miss a chance. You know, just having that like I think you said it alluded to a reset. You know, a word that's a reset just to kind of get them. Because how many times have you seen strikers miss a chance and that's them done for the whole game and they're just moping around, their heads down, and they they they'll miss the next one, then the next one, then the next one. Right, uh, you see that you see that all the time. And wh- one thing that's quite interesting—I don't know if you've been watching the last dance—but um, there's a really funny story that uh, about Michael Jordan, where he said he um, he basically would make up stories, invent stories to try to get, get him in that in that sort of uh, frenzied state, like you said, that, that kind of that red state, uh, in order to to maximise his his, his, his uh, advantages over his, uh, an opponent. So he, one of the stories was he um, played against, a, uh, I think, a young rookie who who absolutely destroyed him in one game. But they played them back to back. So there was, I think there was a one-day gap in between the two games. So um, he's, he, he went to the locker room and said, oh, that guy just said, um, oh, good game. So he put his hand on my shoulder and went, good game. And he said, like, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he, you know, I can't believe he embarrassed me. So he said, the next game, I think the guy scored 36 points on him and he scored something like 30, Michael Jordan scored 35 points in the first half a day later or two days later. And then the, the story came out years later that he never even said it. He never even said this. He never even said anything to, to Michael Jordan. But Michael Jordan had used that as, I guess, his kind of, uh, script or self-talk to try to get him into that mental state that he needed to be at to perform at his optimum level, which I thought was, was sort of in along a similar lines to, to, to what you're saying, not directly in, in, in the game as such, but post-game in reflection, which was something he was going to carry on into the next game. Yeah, if we want to make that practically applied for our listeners and things, like the starting point when you work with someone, what does my best performance look like? And then how can I get myself into that state before I perform? Because if you right. can develop a pre-performance routine, like a plan, the night before, the morning, the journey, when you get to the change rooms, when you're on the pitch warming up before you leave the change rooms, if you can develop that routine that gets yourself into that state, you know you perform at your best and you're going yeah. to perform better and more consistently. Because what I think you'll find is the majority of youth players turn up and they're not thinking about it. They're not flicking a the switch. They're still in school mode when they arrive at the pitch yeah. and they're not going to get the maximum from their performance. 
So there's two aspects. You've got to recall your best ever performance. How did I prepare? What was my mindset? And what can I do to replicate that? And it's also important to look at when I don't perform so well, what are the reasons for that? What's my preparation look like before? So if you know what your keys for low-level performance are, if you know what your keys for high-level performance are, you can develop those routines. Then it means you can get into that state more consistently. And then you can also then introduce techniques, your trigger words and different things within your performance to try yeah, and so regulate it during. I'm guessing things like what you eat, what you drink, you know, what you, uh, how you slept the night before, you know, all those kinds of things are, are all tie into that. Is that correct? Yeah, it all goes, it all goes hand in hand. And then also yeah. in terms of do you use visualization before, how much do you think about the game? What types of things are you thinking about? Like that right. plays in it massively because whenever you're using visualization, the parts of your brain that are activated are the same parts when you're actually physically doing it. So when you sit at home and you think about the game, the parts of your brain are activated that when you're actually performing because your brain can't tell the difference between imagination and reality. So that was one of the things I worked out with the gymnast because physically gymnastics takes quite a massive load on her body. So I was able to treble her training time just through the use of the imagery script because obviously she can only train so much physically. That's the same as well. If you can yeah. prepare before the game, you know what player you're playing against. You know exactly what you're going to do. You're going in. That means your eyes, you're going to be focusing on more relevant information and you're going to be able to perform to a much higher level more consistently. Has that sort of changed in in, in recent times? I, I remember I was first introduced to visualisation and one of the things I struggled to to um, to get my head around was actually having the capacity to visualise um whether it be in a darkened room, whether it be in my bed the night before, like that, that sort of level of distraction. So are there other ways, like would, say for example, like watching video of yourself, is, is that in, in keeping with, with some of those um, visualisation techniques that could help? Are, are there other ways in which, is it maybe a, a photograph of, 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 a, of a game that you played a really good, how, how are some sort of more visual, literally visual ways in which you could visualise, um, you know, your best games or, or moments that you've experienced that really get you into that into that positive frame of mind? Yeah, well, the starting point is it's a skill. So the first time you do it, it won't be so clear. So the yeah. more you practice it over time, then the better okay. it will become. And as you said as well, going to a dark room, at the start of all my performance scripts, I have breathing. So then when you go through a breathing routine, then it makes you more calm. It brings you more into the moment. So then you're less distracted. Okay. And then, as you said as well, I give them an audio script. So they stick their headphones in and it talks them through, which helps them structure their visualization as well. Because if you're just sitting right. in your room as a young person, you don't really know what to think about. You don't really know what to do. So all they've got to do, the players I work with, they literally just stick their headphones in. We develop the script together. Sometimes we develop with a head coach and then they'll stick the headphones in and they listen to it. So they go through the breathing, they go through that. Mm. But then, as you said, yeah, videos and things are quite useful as well. But then also going to the environment. So Mark would sit in the stadium after training because that's the environment they play in. So he'd be sitting there at the pitch. He's going to be playing up the next day and then he'd look at it. And then sometimes as well, so it's there's a thing called pet lap imagery. So it kind of breaks down what imagery is. So like physical, like actually wearing your clothes physically, you're going to be performing in. But essentially, that's what training is. A training is essentially visualization for the performance because you're in yeah. the kit, you're in the environment, you're looking at the pictures. How's the opponent going to play? So essentially, that is a physical training in itself. But then it's so valuable to have that visualization away from the pitch because it shows it improves your performance. Even sitting on the sofa, you can improve your performance using visualization. And that's a skill that not a lot of people are utilizing. You've got to break it down. You've got to make it as vivid as possible. So incorporating all the senses, what did you hear? What did you feel? What was the emotion? So in the more detailed you can make it, seeing it in real time as well, then the more likely the pictures are to become reality and to help you with your performance. 
That's quite that's quite interesting. You know, a lot of our players they they are very very adamant to know what kit colors we're wearing the day after for for the match. Um, I suppose it's for that reason. You know, they want to be able to visualize themselves in the kit and understand what it what they're going to look like for for game day. But I wanted to go back just a little bit. Um, Chris, you mentioned something about that dossier of the of the Burnley coach of mm. having sort of like an understanding of um, how to motivate specific individuals, right? Because there's a, there was a mention of Wayne Rooney uh, earlier on, and there was an an article that came out that he thrived on conflict, so he would always be in a little bit of an argument with Sir Alex Ferguson in every match, and that kind of spurred him on to play well. If he felt as if somebody was doubting him, he played better. Um, same with Michael Jordan. He wanted a little bit of conflict. Like, oh, what? Clyde Drexler is not on my level, so I'm going to play mm-hmm. better. You know. Mm-hmm. But then there are individuals who want that a little bit more of a arm around the shoulder type of deal to it. And for individuals who perhaps are not as perceptive of what drives them on or what, what makes them a better player, how do you, you kind of get that information out from them and, and to understand better what – person needs it's just the original starting point so you sit down and have that conversation so what does my best look like what does my worst look like then once we've identified those things we can sort of look at what leads to those and you'll typically find there's trends so you'll typically find going into a game everyone has a story in their head everyone's got a narrative and it'll depend on which opponent they're playing against what happened against this team last time what's my form like at the minute what happened the last time we played at this pitch so everyone's got a story in their head. Everyone's got that self-talk. Everyone's got pictures in their head of what the game's going to be like. And it's important that we can structure these things that brings about their best their best performance. But when we're communicating, we impact the images that the players see in their heads. We impact how players talk to themselves, of how we communicate with them as well. So one of the key aspects of when we're communicating, communicating with people, we've got to have that person in mind. What they re- do they respond best to? And for coaches, being emotionally intelligent is really important. So when we look at a player, if we say something to them, we've got to see how they react to it and think about that then for next time of how we can get the best out of them. So you can do it by talking to them, asking what they like, finding out about them, finding about their life off the pitch as well, but then also by observing them in the environment. How do they react to certain feedback from teammates? How do they react from my communication with them? And over that, then you can sort of develop a profile of what works best and how you can get the best from them. I think that's so important and it's not necessarily what coaches coaches look for. Coaches are looking to see if the fullbacks overlapping at the right time, if the midfielders dropping off. They're not necessarily looking at the emotional side of the game. And I think they're missing a massive opportunity with that. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that, Blaine. And I made that big, big uh, that's the biggest mistake I made when I first went into coaching a men's team is, is spending too much time on the tactical, the, the technical, the um, setting the team up for, for, for the game itself. When really, they're, they're, I, I could have maximised an individual's, or the, and then in turn the team's performance. Had I just approached things in a more, whether it be a positive way or an individual individualised way, to maximise individual performance, which then in turn will maximise the team performance. You know, uh, and, and then making the mistake, I made the mistake of treating everyone the same. Right, you can't treat everybody the same. People respond to different things, diff- you know, situations differently. You, you have to hand. I mean, again, you look at the last dance. Dennis Rodman, you couldn't treat Dennis Rodman the way you would treat Steve Kerr, right? If Steve Kerr went on a two-week bender in Las Vegas, 
you know, you'd be like, what the heck's going on? But if it's Dennis Robin, you're like, okay, he kind of needs to have that release in order for him to, to, to maximize his, his, his playing potential. And I think that's where from that documentary, Phil Jackson needs to get a lot of praise because, um, he sets his ego aside and he's able to manage the individual player. And in turn, he, he's able to maximize the individual performance and then the collective performance as well. Yeah. And that's what the best coaches do. You, you hear about Eric Cantona turning up wearing jeans when everyone else is wearing a club suit. And there's, what's the point of having conflict and fighting them? You've you got to pick your battles sometimes. And if you can do that, then you can get the best out of individuals that help the performance of the team. I think that's that's vital, isn't it? That's what the top the top coaches do. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of coaches, including myself, made that mistake. You know, being sort of too uh, too focused on those smaller elements. You know, I, I remember one game. I don't know if you remember this game, Jing. We got beat by uh, JPV, and about half the squad was late because because uh, um, Manila traffic and not normal 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 situation. And I was such a nice the lamb. I'm a massive stickler or being on time and absolutely just ripped, ripped the whole squad, uh, ripped the whole squad in front of everyone, you know, an hour and a half before kickoff, you know, it was more, and it was, it was very much about you know, how dare they disobey me? How dare they be late? You know, so disrespectful towards me and really missing the, the bigger picture here, which was, all right, okay, they've been late. Let's make sure that they get themselves in the right frame of mind, win the game, see it out, we can talk about this another time or we can, we can revisit this at a later stage. In the end, we got beat three, one. I don't know if you remember the game, Jing, it's when uh, Matt Acton got, got chipped from the halfway line. Uh, oh, by wow. Who's now there. But I take, but I take full responsibility for that blame. That was completely my fault. Like I, I didn't pick the right battle. I, I honed in on, on, on a really negative aspect and, and it was, it was totally ego driven. It was totally about, well, that's because they've been disrespectful to me. It wasn't that at all. It wasn't that at all. Um, so it's really interesting that you, that you say that about, and, and Jing mentioned it also, about having understanding the profile of the players that you're working with, understanding the wants and needs of, of, of the individual, and then being able to deliver that on an individual level. Because ultimately, I think that, that, that helps the collective, doesn't it? Yeah, another thing you touched on there as well, coaches recognize the need to mentally prepare their players but then they forget to mentally prepare themselves so it's a psychological aspect when it comes to you managing your emotions so you can see things clearly and make good decisions because if you're seeing red all the time you're not going to make good decisions you're not going to see the game you're going to be biased and you're not going to have a good honest evaluation of the game it's going to affect the changes you make it's going to affect your tactics it's going to affect everything yeah i think in that game i made a horrific substitution i took off uh I took off Robert Lopez Mendy, who was our star striker. Uh, with about 10 minutes to go, we were 1 0 up. Um, he was one of the ones who was late. He was always late, bless him. Lovely guy. He was just a hor- horrific timekeeper. I took him off I took him off with 10 minutes to go, and we lost the game 3 1. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you say that. And I think emotional in- intelligence is something that, um, Again, it's massively overlooked, massively, massively over, overlooked when it comes to the coaching element. 
And, and, and as you said, it's something that isn't really spoken about on, on coaching courses. You know, you spend two weeks on a coaching course and 99.9% of it is all about tactical, how you're going to set up your teams, you know, what formation you're going to play, what your progressions look like. Yet ultimately to maximise performance, it, it is those coaches with really high levels of emotional intelligence. They're the ones who get the best out of their players and they're the ones who are successful. A lot of time is when they bring people in the, these courses and things, some of them aren't necessarily sports psychologists. They're motivational speakers or they're people from different backgrounds. They don't actually understand the theoretical under, underpinnings of sports psychology. That's what frustrates me quite a bit because we went out of one of the, the course we did was brilliant in Belfast, but we went out of the room after one of the lectures on psychology and every it was just like a comedy. Like everyone was laughing their heads off. Like I don't think many people came out of the room with an understanding of how they apply sports psychology within their practice. Mm. And it was good. He was a brilliant presenter. I think that's maybe the aspect they're trying to get across, how to present yourself or come across to the group. Right. It was more It was more amusing than it was informative in terms of how right. we can use that within our practice. And so, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing you've said there, Blaine. I mean, what, what sort of thing, what are some of the things that are actionable? I mean, you've mentioned there, you know, having a performance script, which I think is a great one. I, you spoke before with me about the one you did with Mark. I didn't know about the gymnast, but obviously along the similar sorts of lines the visualization techniques and, and the self-talk, you know, I think that that's really good. What other key things do you think for any sort of young players that are out there listening, what are some of the more actionable things that they can do to really help improve one's performance? Well, setting objectives for every training session, stemming from your goals and then making it specific as well. So I want to work on receiving the ball between the lines during this training session. I want to receive the ball between the lines five times I'm going to be scanning. I'm going to be getting in people's blind spots in good positions to receive. So breaking down their objectives before a training session so they go in with a clear idea of exactly what they want. Because essentially we want the players to be independent. We want them to set their own goals. We want them to set their objectives for training sessions. And then we want them to influence the people around them so having a positive impact on their teammates. And then we want them third to utilise the coach so getting the most they can from the coach. So it's kind of the three-step process we work from, yeah. we want them to be independent learners. And then also within that, you've got reflection. So you've set your objectives and things, but you've got to reflect on your previous training session. What did I do well? I can take confidence from moving in this training session. What can I work on? Then also identifying strengths and things because everyone's very negative. They typically think to themselves that if I want to get to the next level, I have to improve my weaknesses. But if you only improve your weaknesses, you're going to become an average player. Whereas you've got to have a couple of strengths and keep working in those because if you want to take your game to the next level, you even need to improve in those strengths. And that's where you take your confidence from. That's where you take your identity from. And then also what we're talking about as well, Michael Jordan, he would tell himself those stories and things to raise his, to get himself fired up. So you've got to find out where your best performance lies. Berbatov, as we spoke about Ozil, they play better when they're calm, whereas people like Wayne Rooney and Michael Jordan play better when they're fired up. So it's identifying where their best performance lies on that scale. And then also the reflection during the performance. So am I analysing things? Am I analysing what the opponent's doing? Am I analysing what I'm doing in terms of within the performance, improving yourself? Because you can't always rely on the coach. The coach can't fix every single action for 16, 20 players. So it's making them independent, taking control of their development. And then after the session as well, reflecting on that. And then how you can use the session to improve your performance. So there's loads loads we can do. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant, thing. So when you travel your, all over... Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, Jing. I, I, I'm quite saying, interested, you know, these are some of the things that you um, are teaching all around the world and what kind of age groups are you working with? 
I've worked with every, everything, three three year old kids that can barely walk up to thirty year old international players. So I've kind of worked through the whole spectrum. It's kind of it helps you as well, is because as Chris well knows, if you can coach those age groups at three, five years old, you can coach anyone. Because that's where the real coaching comes into it, right? Right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I've coached my my he's now five. I I've taken his age group for 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 a few years now. Oh my gosh. Hardest, hardest co- level of coaching. There's, there's no license for that one. Let me let me tell you that. <laughs> if if there was, that would be a, it'd be an impossible one to pass. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that. I, I'm truly really interested because you don't really know this, but Jing, um, he and his brother like really, uh, I say high end, very very uh, good martial artists. And I, I was wondering what is this something that's prevalent in in that industry so much? Jing, obviously, I know with martial arts in general. Um, you know, are, are probably a little more attuned to to that side of of uh, of the game, I would say. Um, but uh, some of those things, stuff that you were taught in in, in martial arts when you were growing up, learning that, um, not really. Actually, None? you know, um, it, it wasn't really brought up. But you know, personally, um, once you've gone through sort of like the anxiety of of, of preparing and getting into a competition and being around this room filled with toss testosterone of individuals who are you know essentially preparing themselves for battle you know what i mean so um you start to figure out ways to put yourself in a calm state of mind or fire yourself up it depends on what you need right and and like you said in different individuals require different things and so you do i personally did a little bit of research myself into you know what what kind of mindsets fighters have you know um and there's this book called fighter's mind that that i read uh, a while back, and there's this guy named Vinny Shorman that I that I that I read up on and and, li- and follow on social media. And there's there's different things that people do, you know. Um, for example, George Saint Pierre, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time, he was always an anxious mess. He was always thinking about the bad things that could happen to him, and that spurred him on to be like, I can't allow those things to happen to me. Whereas other people like Conor McGregor are all about full confidence, about nobody can touch me. Um, it, I'm a supreme athlete. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I've 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 figured out the game uh, ahead, three steps ahead of you. So they 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 come into the cage with supreme confidence. Um, it's different things, you know. For me, it always helped to be calm, um, to always just not allow my emotions to get the better of me because that's my tendency is to get flustered. So I, I, I like the idea of like keeping my wits about me and not allowing my emotions to get too fired up. So it depends, you know, but one thing that I saw as a, as a nice little technique was that there was this visualization, a lot of like uh, Japanese samurai used to do. Um, they used to think about death, like they, they visualize their own death. And once they visualize their own death, that's like the worst case scenario of what could possibly happen in a battle. And once you've made peace with that idea of, of losing your, your, your life, you can then sort of like perform at a state where you're free of that burden of fear. So then you're just like, all right, whatever. I've accepted the fact that it's possible that this could happen. I visualized it already. So then I can just step out there and perform to whatever way that I can to the best of my ability and, and leave the result to the gods, so to speak. Um, and that, and that worked for them, you know? So I'm, 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 I'm extremely fascinated by the many different ways that people respond to different types of stimuli and, and to be able to control that, I suppose, and to have your own script. Um, that's the key, you know, but the thing here in the Philippines, for example, if, you, if, if just veering it back into the Philippine 
football um, community and, and, and environment is that budget is something that is such a big deal, you know, just to try to get the team to play, to make sure that everybody is together, to have even physios is a luxury for some of the other teams, right? To have a professional mental coach or uh, a sports psychologist on the staff is perhaps a luxury too far for certain individuals or certain teams, you know? So learning from Blaine and just having basics, a few things that they can integrate would be massive, I think, in, in, in uplifting the level of performance of, of a lot of our players, you know? So yeah. What, do you have like that, that people can maybe just like take a few steps into this world and perhaps just to open the door and get their, their wet their mouths, so to speak, or wet the beak with regards to, you know, the, the importance of the mental game. Yeah. Well, I'm developing an online course at the minute and I'm trying to want to do more things. I did with Chris the other night in terms of workshops and things. So I'm going to develop a course for the players first, but then after that, I'm going to develop one for the coaches because I think that's really, really important because you can educate one coach to deliver these techniques with players within a session then you can impact a much larger range of kids but I've got these 14 topics that basically it's kind of comprehensive it covers everything that you kind of need to get success but when you go back to it as well like you're talking about all these guys like George St. Pierre Michael Jordan and things the thing that separates them obviously they're very very talented but the thing that separates them is that mentality and research has shown it as well the only significant the only thing that, that psychological readiness was the only significant thing that made them realize that they're going to get success within Olympians. So that was the only difference. So it's important that we can embed these within our programs because a lot of coaches, I'm sure Chris has heard this, a lot of coaches talk about teaching life skills and things and teaching different things, but all they're encouraging is good behaviors. We need to have curriculums that we're working from because the two go hand in hand, like tactics and psychology go hand in hand. Like, are you brave to play it from the back? There's so many psychological characteristics that link into every training session we do, but we're missing it because we're not thinking about these aspects because the two go hand in hand. But going back to it, yeah, essentially I want to develop a, develop a course on it and then try and help the coaches, especially in different countries in Asia. Because in the UK and things, there's lots of sports psychology degrees, but in Asia, there aren't so many. So obviously there's a lot less provision. And then as you said, a lot of clubs and things can't afford to bring sports psychologists in. So we need to try and give easy, simple techniques for coaches to use within their practice, which will hopefully make a make a big difference. No, I think it's brilliant, Blaine. I, I really, I, I've enjoyed the, the presentation you did the other day. I've enjoyed talking to you before about this as a topic. It's one that really fascinates me because it's an area that I'm probably not wholly versed in. It's not something that I've um, had a lot of exposure to. It was something that I think as a player I would have massively, massively benefited from. Um, but like most young players, didn't really have much exposure to it, didn't have anyone to turn to when you are finding your performance anxiety is really, really high and then you're left to your own devices to try and work it out. And then it comes back to some of the other things you mentioned about just the self-doubt that creeps in because you know you're constantly saying to yourself, am I good enough? Can I make it? You know, I probably shouldn't be here anymore. Like, you know, I'm playing terribly. My form's, my form's bad. Um, and then having coaches who shout and scream at you because you know you're playing bad. And then that just, that, again, that just suppresses all of that anxiety. Um, yeah, especially, especially you know, when you're younger as well. You can't, you can't rationalise things because your brain hasn't fully developed. So you build things up, up in your mind to be much worse than they are and that impacts upon your performance. Well, I think you also... From, from, 
Like, speak, yeah, I mean, I, that is, it, it's, it's, it impacts me still today. You know, I, I look at my time back in my youth team days, and between the ages of 16 and 19. Sorry, that means to be a therapy session here, Blaine. But, um, but no, <laughs> I, I, I totally, uh, you know, I, I can recall moments where I'm literally thinking to myself, like, my gosh, is this, is this what I'm being really subjected to? You know, I'm, I'm 17, 16, 17 years old. I'm being subjected to this kind of, um, I mean, it's abuse. It is abuse. You know, it's abusive language. It's uh, very aggressive in its tone. But I suppose in that time, it's, you know, you sink or swim. And I, I, I'm anticipating it probably still happens today in a lot of environments, although I'm sure it's changed to some degree. I'm guessing it's still there. And you only have to look onto the sideline of any youth team game and you see parents shouting and screaming at their six-year-old, seven-year-old kid to kick every ball, to, you know, why, why, is he, why is he not doing this? Why is she not doing that? And, and of course, that's going to have a negative impact down, down the road. So no, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting that you bring that up, but, uh, you know, whether it be a six or seven-year-old or, or a 17, 18-year-old. You, you, their brains aren't fully developed. They're not able to process all of that stuff. So we definitely need to give them the tools to be able to process that and manage that. A lot of them as well, they don't understand it. They think they're the only ones that feel that way. So sometimes you get two <laughs> players in a group that just talk to each other and explain how they're feeling when they realise that other people feel the same way, but it helps them feel a lot better about themselves. Because yeah. at the minute, kids don't, they don't realise that, that people experience these kind of things. Everyone sees Messi come onto the pitch as a 17-year-old, makes professional debut, and they think it's a straight line to the top. They understand the ups and downs. So one, one of the concepts, one of the topics we work off is called Power to Your Potential. And within that, there's a lot of stories about players who get released, they fall down the league as they come back. Because your journey in life, no matter what you do, it's ups and downs as well. And that's even a basic thing we need to teach kids. You're not always going to perform well. Some games you're not going to play well. It happens to everyone in the world. And even just understanding simple things like that can help them with their performance and cope and handle certain situations. Yeah. And that's brilliant, Blaine. I mean, look, we've only got a certain amount of time that we can explore this, but... You know, I've seen um, some of your presentations, obviously, and I know, uh, you know some of the key points that you're looking to deliver with um, your 17-point, um, uh, how, how would you describe it, um, program. And, you know, for anyone that's out there, I mean, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a football club. You know, it could be a, it could be a school, it could be another sports team, it could be, um, yeah, anyone who's just looking to try to find um, some sort of competitive advantage or uh, a framework to, um, to to work from. And I think that, that you're a great resource, Blaine, and there's, there's so many different ways in which you can you can potentially help, whether it be an athlete or a student, just to try to maximise uh, their performance or, or their capacity at, at school. Um, because like, like you said, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from this conversation, Blaine, is it's not everyone's going to be a footballer, but it is, it's our responsibility to develop them in a holistic sense. And while a lot of clubs say they do that, um, I don't think they do. I don't think they do, or they could do a much, much better job. So that for me is, is, is something that uh, as a responsibility that myself will, will really um, you know, take from this conversation and try to implement that as best we can, because I, I do think we have an obligation working in that specific space to, 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 to give these kids the best possible chance to be successful in whatever pursuit they, they choose to, uh, to follow. Yeah, it's linking parallel sessions into those as well. So you obviously have the main football-based concepts, and then once they successfully perform them within the sporting context, then that's when we can transfer them to other areas. But then also within that, you've got things like gratitude. So just teach them to be thankful yeah. for the things they yeah. have. Like social media, there, there's so many different aspects that we can teach kids. There's so many dangers and things out there. 
so many simple techniques that we can give them that can make a real meaningful difference in their lives. And for me, that's what drives me because I would love that when I was younger. But when you work with people and you see the difference you can make of it's really basic things, but they just haven't had access to it. And that's what gives me a real buzz, a real drive yeah. trying, trying to help people essentially. Yeah, that in itself is hugely gratifying, isn't it? Getting that, being able to deliver that to, to, to get somewhere to the point where they really are improving and really developing. And even for the ones that make it professional as well, like the difference we were able to make with Mark of one open communication conversation in a program and see when he scored that goal against Buriram, I've never celebrated a goal like that in my life. Like <laughs> me and the president of the summer jumping up on top of each other. It's just, so it works within the performance environments because a lot of players drop out of the game because they haven't developed that skill set yet. So if we yeah. can develop that skill set within more youngsters then more of them are going to progress into the adult game at whatever level that may be. But the, obviously you're increasing the chances of them creating more developing, better players. And if you can work with Mark Hartman, Jing, it can work with absolutely anybody. <laughs> I think that is the, the, the main uh, takeaway from this. As uh, Lord knows, he's not the brightest, is he, Mark? So, um, yeah. yeah probably listen, probably um, listen to us as well. <laughs> good, I hope he does. I hope he does. What about you, Jing? Anything, anything from you that you can, you can take from, from this conversation? Anything that you think will be particularly relevant in, in your uh, you know, day-to-day life or your work? No, I think it's tremendous. You know, um, a, a lot of what was said today, I think, could translate uh, into a lot of aspects of life. You know, I mean, I don't prepare for training sessions, but, you know, stepping into an interview, stepping into, um, you know, uh, uh, a coverage um, or going into like I do a little bit of sports casting on the side, you know, um, I've been doing it for seven years now. Um, and I, I still get the jitters and I've, I've, I've gotten myself into a particular state of mind now where I have a little process that helps, but I think I could do better. You know, I think, you know, visualizing it the night before and, and finding ways and scripts, uh, that I can, I can say to myself, I think that would, that would be very beneficial to how I perform and, and get, take myself to the next level, you know? So yeah, man, it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating to kind of dig into this and, uh, sort of assess, the, the the little holes in my mental game uh, that I have, which I feel are are many. And if if I feel that way, and I, I like to think that you know I'm self reflective, man, there are individuals out there who don't give that any thought whatsoever. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, I'm sure that could be very beneficial to them to sort of be a little bit more reflective. And I suppose that, that before before we let you go, Blaine, is is actually one thing that I wanted to ask is. What, what about those individuals, you know, who, who are perhaps who don't take an introspective look at themselves and are a little bit more hesitant to, to that kind of approach who, who, who like to have a little bit of a wall there? How do you break into some, somebody like that? Well, you got to understand everyone's personality. So it comes back to the individual again. But the key thing you've got to realize is people might not talk about or think about self-talk, might not think about visualization and things. But all of these are happening to them every day. And the thing is, it could be breaking down their performance. It could be breaking down how they feel about themselves because they're not aware of it. So if we can develop that awareness, no matter who it is, no matter what their personality is, if we can give them a little bit of knowledge, we can give them a little bit of awareness to know the kind of things to look out for and then to give them simple techniques to improve it. And it's going to make a massive difference in all in all areas of their life. But then again, it's just about developing relationships with people. You've got to connect with them before you try and impart knowledge. And then once you develop that connection, you develop that relatedness, you find something in common, you, they realize you, you care about them, you're there to help them. And then generally they'll open up. And then when they start to feel better, when they start to perform better, then that connection becomes a lot stronger. 
All right. That's amazing. Uh, for, for individuals who are, who are interested in, in delving a little deeper in, in some of the things that you specialize in, where should they go? Um, I know, you know, obviously you're on social media, but is there a website that they can go to? Um, yeah, I've got a website, www.lifesportsperformance.com. And on that, I've got a lot of blogs on psychology. I've got a few podcasts and things that I've done. But that's one of the key things as well. There aren't many resources out there. And that's kind of one of the things that we need to, we need to change. There's, there's millions of things out there for technical and tactical things, but there's not as many out there for psychology. And I think for me, that's a lot more important because that's kind of the underpinning thing for everything you do. Chris, anything else you wanted to add? No, just, yeah. I mean, he's very busy on social media. He's very good at getting back, uh, back to people, always responds. Uh, and I think you do brought, you do, it's not just psychology that you talk about. You do cover quite a broad spectrum of things on, on your social media. I mean, psychology is one of the, the main ones, but you do, um, you know, cover some other, other aspects as well. So no, please give him a follow. I uh, maybe we try and stick him in the show notes, your, your handles and stuff. Um, but no, thanks so much for coming on, Blaine. I think it's been really insightful. There's, there's not many people here in the, in the Philippines who are um, who are doing what you do. So uh, it's great to, to have someone come in and provide that, that level of insight, that level of detail. And uh, yeah, I just really hope that the, the listeners, the viewers, you know, take that on board. I certainly will. I'll certainly look to, to implement some of the things you talked about there, Blaine. So yeah, thanks so much for, for for coming on the show. Is there anything that you wanna you wanna mention before before you go? Anything you wish we'd asked you? Uh, anything you wanna cover? No, I was just kind of want to just say that like eventually for the next couple of years, I want to develop my own consultancy. So when I develop my online course, that's kind of going to be what I'm doing full time. Then I also want to help clubs and individuals within Asia because obviously that's a massive footballing market, and there's a lot of people that aren't getting access to the kind of things they need. So that's what I kind of want to do moving forward. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of my website, my website's okay, but the best place to kind of get me is on Instagram and things. So BMCK77 and then at Blaine McKenna77 on Twitter. All right, there it is. Uh, look for him on social media. Uh, stay abreast on, on everything that's going on in the world of Blaine McKenna and which country he's going to end up in in the, in the near future. Uh, we hope that we'll be able to catch up with you at some point down the road and uh, maybe you'll be somewhere else, Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or uh, another continent perhaps. But uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back on. It's been uh, tremendous having you on for the last hour. Thank you for coming on, Blaine. And uh, yeah, all the best. If you guys enjoyed this uh, conversation with Blaine McKenna, please do subscribe to the show on YouTube, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. That's it uh, for this Football Friday, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.